everyone. Welcome to Seeing Color, a podcast that talks with cultural workers and artists of color in order to expand the area of what is a predominantly white space in the arts. I'm your host, Ziwon Chong. Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well wherever you are. I just finished a four-channel video during my time in Shanghai. I also had a chance to exhibit it to the local arts community. It's great to see people come out and take a look, get some feedback. Uh, but now I'm currently preparing to leave back to Zhuhai in a bit. I also just finished my time at the Rogers Art Loft Residency, and I held a closing talk last week on Zoom. So thank you all who swung by and checked it out. It was a really wonderful experience, and I hope to be able to visit everyone that I was able to connect to in Las Vegas sometime soon. I will be posting the conversations I had with the local Las Vegas community over the next few months, interspersed with some previous interviews I already conducted. So stay tuned for all of that. But for today, I will be talking with Brent Holmes, a multidisciplinary artist with a deep affinity to words. Historical, epistemological, and ontologically themed creative projects. Holmes also seeks to create a dialogue through several culinary projects on the nature of communication, immorality, and identity. Brent holds no degrees and says he most likely never will. Being the son of an entertainer, Brent has thoroughly traveled but has never completely identified to any one place as his home, at least until moving to Las Vegas. Brent and I chat about the coming apocalypse and for whom. The construction of the American West in relation to freedom, the body within the landscape, and symbolisms and objects. It was an enjoyable chat, and hopefully you will like it as well. As always, stay safe and healthy wherever you are, and I hope you enjoy this. Didn't get enough sleep last night, but I mm. woke up, uh, ran a couple errands, worked a little bit, and then fed the kids and came down here. So it's it's you know it's been a full day. Yeah, hopefully my day will be just as full. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I guess you know I like to always talk about the person I'm interviewing and get a little bit more information about you know your origin story, where you grew up, and then your background as an artist. How did you end up doing the kind of work that you're doing? And I think you do a lot of different types of works. You do performance, found objects, sculptures, and so I'm really curious, you know, how you got into all these different fields. Um, wow. Okay. So, I mean, I loved art since I was a child. I, you know, during the pandemic, I really realized that drawing was my first form of like self-soothing that I can yeah. identify. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, uh, maybe sucking my thumb before that, but sucking your thumb is really <laughs> not a thing you do anymore. It's a, it's a performance. Yeah, it is. It is a bit of a performance. So, so when I was, you know, really young, I got into drawing and comic books and cartoons and. I just loved anything that was kind of an illustrated image, and you know, I was really lucky enough to have a mother and a father that were both in the arts, certain points in their careers, and they introduced me to the you know the broader world. My my childhood, growing up, we traveled a lot. My father's an entertainer.、Um, the one thing that they knew they could rely on that would keep my interest as a child was taking me to a museum. Uh, and whether it was、mm. a natural history or science museum or an arts museum, I always kind of got a kick out of those kind of displays, the way museums were organized. So, right, right. That, that, those are kind of the origins of my creative practice or my interest in the arts. 
And where did you move around throughout your childhood? Was it like a lot? Uh, of the United places? States. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to say I'm proficiently bicoastal. Um, it was mostly New Jersey, New York area, a little bit of uh -huh. um, Massachusetts, and then California and Nevada. Okay. You, you know, uh, my father's a professional singer. And he mm -hmm. works mainly in, you know, in, sh in stage shows. So anywhere there was a live show, but, you know, so Atlantic City a lot, Las Vegas a lot, but mm -hmm. also crazy places like the Caribbean, uh, Florida, mm -hmm. wow. you know, Pennsylvania, and then, you know, Los Angeles, he had a whole stint in his career there. Wow. So okay. it, it's similar to kids that grew up with military families, I think, but yeah, less yeah. structured. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. And, and so you were drawing this entire time then? Yeah, it was something you could always carry with you, right? This is pre-iPhone, yeah, yeah. this is pre-tablet. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. My mom knew that I could sit there with a pencil and a paper and, and you know, just kind of go to town for hours. So, it, you know, we're stuck in hotels, on long car rides, on plane rides. And she's got this, you know, little kid that's like, oh, what do I do with this? And, and you know... I could always draw. <laughs> and so it was, you know, something I grew to love. And then high school, middle school, high school, all that stuff. And then I, I did about half a college, about three semesters of college and dropped out, joined the circus for a while. Oh, really? And really, uh, not the circus circus. I joined a touring burlesque act and vaudeville show Whoa. called the Yard Dogs Roadshow for several months. Okay. And I kind of did some puppeteering with them uh -huh. and so on. And they, they actually were in, in many ways were more influential than college for me. Because they were of a, you know, do anything, put it together however you can kind yeah. of attitude. And yeah. that's where I really, those, those were the people I really admired. I, I didn't do that well with the structure and I certainly didn't enjoy engaging professors a lot of the time. I didn't understand why. <laughs> I just wanted to understand how to, you know, use materials yeah, and yeah. engage them appropriately. And I didn't really want to be told how to think or perceive or, you know, what X, Y, or Z was. I wanted to draw my own conclusions that way. Did you so. go to undergrad for art? So you were in art school or... Yeah, I went. To, I went to a little college called Montserrat College of the Arts, okay, okay. and uh, it was it was fun. I was up in Mass and up by Salem, and I certainly learned a lot, and and I had a good time. But you know, after two semesters, I, I was it was just no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so from there, you did the traveling tour. Is I, I assume that's where you learned a lot about thinking about performing, probably yeah. in front of a public space for a real audience. Um, and thinking about your body in relationship to the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the live performance aspect, I, you know, well, I've been watching it all my life. My mother's a theater masters. My father's a professional stage showman. Mm -hmm. And then when I fell in with the yard dogs for a while, it really hit home how kind of beautiful live performance is. But, th you know, that wasn't something that I really started engaging until later in my practice. I was performing on stage with them, but after that kind of fell apart a little bit, I had some serious addiction problems for a while and really was unproductive. Mm -hmm. And after I recuperated from that, by then I was actually kind of engaged in raising a family. And uh, I had my first son in 2010, and okay. uh, I kind of dedicated my time to that and providing for them and producing fine art in equal measure. So, so it was a lot. Right, right. Re-engaging art and my artistic practice before the birth of my son was what helped me move away from my substance abuse. It, it was really interesting. I, I lost art at a certain point in my life due to 
course of events, depression, sort of all of that stuff. And then when I came back to it, it was really the thing that kept me sober and, and continues to keep me sober, you know, um, yeah. idle hands, devil's playground, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what were some of the works that you think really started shifting and, and you started kind of finding the interest that you are currently interested in today, right? So I'm curious, because a lot of the works that I saw, as I understand it, a lot of the themes that you're interested in, this idea of a lot, there's a lot of imagery of the cowboy, the idea of sort of the West Coast, the desert. Um, I know you're in Las Vegas, so I, I'm assuming that is like a huge influence on you, but could you talk about these themes? And also when, when did these themes start entering the work and also the way that you're thinking about art? Yeah, I mean, I think the primary theme of my work is history and how it functions within society and how it works on an epistemological level to how we agree upon what reality is or, mm -hmm. and, or how we disagree. And history is one of those prime operators in that, uh, yeah, prime yeah. drivers. And so I think the first show I actually can say that like I really felt fully engaged in my practice was a show called Ignominious Refu Refuse, which was about how our culture exists as a holdover from, you know, the Roman Empire. And mm -hmm. while I was doing that, I was also engaging performance primarily through the culinary arts. So okay. I would pick themes, historical ideas and work to make menus and questionnaires or dishes that worked with those in a performative manner. And, and that all kind of started to coalesce around, I'd say 2012 before then mm -hmm. I was really just a photographer and a painter. Yeah. I saw, I saw one of the YouTube clips I found online. You were in London and you're making okonomiyaki. Yes. Okonomiyaki. That That's, was the earliest thing that I could find of yours and the performance of that. That's they might that is my earliest performance. Uh -huh, um okay. at least documented performance. So yeah, yeah. and that was, you know, that was about themes of apocalypse and um misunderstanding, mistranslation, and alienation that come with kind of the decimation of civilizations. And I picked Okonomiyaki specifically as a dish because it is a holdover from the kind of pre-post-atomic era from that World War II point where a true apocalypse had, had occurred, uh, see, you know, in, in Japan. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of, the nuclear era is the end of another era. And I, I view those all as kind of apocalyptic settings. Um, mm. You know, people always talk about the end of the world or apocalypse, but, you know, I, I think that the reality of that something like that is that we're living through, we've lived through many, many tiny apocalypses. Yes, all cultures yes. do, all yes, peoples yes. do. And so then getting into the stuff around the black cowboy, that's really at my, you know, the core of my identity in a lot of ways. My mother is what Beyonce would refer to as a Texas Bama. She is a <laughs> upper class uh, Houston, black Houstonite, which, you know, um, and my family comes from cowboys, black cowboys in Texas. Really? And we would have, yeah. My cousin lives across the street from a rodeo grounds in Wharton County, Texas, in a place oh, wow. called Egypt, Texas. Okay. And they have black rodeos there. All, you know, all black rodeos, black bull riding, black roping, all that stuff. And the, the reality of, of African-American identity in American history is that so much of it gets erased. You know, the, yeah. it's, it's a relatively unknown fact that 25% of all cowboys were black. Uh, coming out of slavery. The Civil mm. War is when, you know, the cowboy era starts. And a lot of the men that knew how to handle cattle and right. and do long cattle drives were right, black right. men. And a lot of mm -hmm. them were also avoiding 
doing something horrible like sharecropping and making pennies on the dollar. You can make a lot more money dealing with the meat industry or, or cattle drives. Right. And my family comes from that tradition. And mm-hmm. we own land out in Egypt, Texas. We have big barbecues. And when I was a kid, I grew up going to a thing that my grandfather put together called the Roundup, which mm-hmm. was when we would vaccinate and brand all of the cattle that we owned as a family. Our family, he owned, you know, maybe a couple hundred heads of cattle. Wow. And okay. during that vaccination season, we would all come out and I would see, you know, and we'd be sitting on this rusty old barn that nobody should have been sitting on. And, <laughs> and I would watch these men, you know, herd the cattle and rope the cows and brand the young ones and castrate the young bulls and vaccinate wow. all the cows to prepare them to make it through the spring season. And then, you know, later on in the year, they would send them off to slaughter. And, and wow. that was that was you know, part of my grandfather's economic well-being or my family's economic well-being. Mm-hmm. And after he died, they actually found oil on some of the land we own and they took the, the kind of money we can make off of oil and they stopped doing cattle production, but that dried up and all of that money kind of got used up in the care of my grandmother before she passed. And mm-hmm. so now my cousin is now bringing back all of these heads of cattle. So, wow. you know, there's my family is ranching again in the classic sense. That's, that's crazy. Do you know how to ranch? Yeah. No. God, no. <laughs> I, you know, I told, like I said, I'm, I'm mostly, I'm mostly bi-coastal. I spent plenty of time out there. My mother got the wild idea when I was 17 before my senior year of high school to send me out to my cousin for about two months, one summer. Uh-huh. And he put me through my paces. And that's about when I realized that I probably didn't want to actually be a cowboy. <laughs> you know, when, when you're yeah. like, um, yeah, it's supposed to be, it's dangerous, right? Also riding the horses. It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, the horses are dangerous. The cows are dangerous. You're digging in the dirt, or you're 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 trying to move cows around, and they don't blink. You know, at this kind of stuff, it's it's just about those things. And you know, I was coming out there and being like, "Well, what do I do if yeah, that happens?" Yeah. You know, that that neuroses, that self doubt. Whereas they're just like, "Well, that's just an old snake." You know, what what, what happens if the snake comes near me? And you're like, "Well, you yeah, kill it yeah, or yeah. you walk away." You, that's it. They don't they don't they're not confused by this. I'm like, "Well, yeah, but it's alive and it's a snake, and maybe I should." You know, that doesn't enter their minds. They right. they have a different way of seeing the world. And it's it's really quite beautiful. You know, we look down a lot on people that live in rural environments and do that kind of work. But their perception of the world and how it functions is in many ways more right. viable than ours, you know, because yeah, yeah. at the end of the day, we're living in this kind of weirdly constructed fantasy right. that is a city right. or, you know, a metropolis. And they're they're kind of actually dealing with the stuff that it takes to make life continue. Right, right. right. Yeah, I mean, thinking about that just in terms of like, you know, people talk about just not being able to understand a different person from a different country and a different language, but like even within our own country and every every country has to do this, like just people can't even understand each other when they speak the same language and are supposedly grew up in the same similar sort of cultural setting but actually there's all these nuances and huge shifts actually that are I think beyond simple nuances right it's sort of different worldview and like you said like you know people who ranch it's a completely different way of you know seeing the world yeah and and I think that you know there are people are living in different eras in many ways yes, depending yeah. on their location depending mm-hmm. on where they live they, they, they they're living in, a, in different times we think you know if you ask a guy living in Silicon Valley, you know, about what the world is, he has a broadly different perception of it than (laughs) even myself. And, you know, take that guy and have him try to explain that to a pig farmer 
I'm pretty sure they're not going to see eye to eye on a lot of things. And, and, you know, that's one of the complicated ways we live. That's how we define reality. Like I said, um, so the, the, the work I most recently did for the Marjorie Barrick, which was an exhibition called Behold a Pale Horse was really about that part of my identity combined with how history functions. Most of the assemblage that I made was made out of literally just stuff I found out in the desert, uh, basically old trash, old houses, old pieces of wood that right. were settlements, were people's lives, right? Were things that people were doing. And this is a remnant of it. That's our trash is our history. And, and, and I think when, when, when archaeologists are like, well, look at these amazing terracotta pots. It's like, <laughs> yeah, well, why are they all broken? And it's like, I, I don't know. And it's like, well, it's a trash pile, dude. Like, this is just, you broke a pot. Okay, well, it goes over in the trash pile, right? And that's one of the ways we show what we were doing is the stuff that we had to get rid of, the stuff that we couldn't repair or we didn't desire to repair. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it was partially that, partially to excavate ideas of what the settler West is and then how African-American identity plays into that and then how my personal identity plays into those histories simultaneously and how all of that kind of works within modalities of Western expansion, which are really about colonialism and land theft and, and, Mm -hmm, you know, the destruction of the indigenous people. Right, right. And also thinking about that, you know, we were talking about different lived experiences and you were also talking about different, you know, apocalypse. And, you know, one apocalypse you could say is like the nuclear bomb, but every uh, generation and every culture has all these series of mini apocalypse, right? And I think, you know, Christians are looking for the apocalypse, the why, I don't know. But, you know, you you know, I think you could definitely argue that the indigenous population had, would have claimed that the apocalypse already happened. Their entire, like you said, yes. the, the world, their, all, all their culture, their land, um, it's all been destroyed, right? In, in a sort of apocalyptic sense, right? Yeah, they're they're living in a post-apocalyptic world. And I mean, so are African-Americans, yeah. mm-hmm. right? So are Mexicans and South Americans. The, the, the Christians that are looking so hard for the apocalypse yeah, brought it to everybody else. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Every You know, if you were the descendant of enslaved Africans in America, well, that was the end of the world for those people. Mm-hmm. They had to yeah. build a new world. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, terrifying to, to register that and understand that. And I think that that's a view of history that up until I'd say the last five, 10 years, we really haven't been allowed to explore as a culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of what the angst or, or, or violence or, or problems we're having in contemporary society is about, right? It's about who's allowed to tell the narrative. It's epistemology. Right. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, what is the accurate telling of this tale? You know, if we have to see our past to understand our present, then if we're leaving notions and notes out of our past, we can't possibly understand where we are. And so that, yeah. that's what the work is about in, in many ways, and, and those kind of excavations, you know, on, and I try to go from a micro to a macro level and really look at each step along the way. And it's also about, you know, my relationship with the desert and Nevada, you know, Las Vegas is a great city. It's weird and crazy and incredibly surreal. I think it's the most surreal city ever created. But what I really love and what makes it heightens all that surreality is that, you know, an hour in any direction and you're faced with untamed wilderness or semi-untamed wilderness that is not exactly hospitable to human life. It's it's not an easy place to survive. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be a really engaging relationship with the sublime, right? Mm -hmm. The sublime being both beautiful and awe-inspiring, but 
also terrifying, right, right? Right. And how that works on the mind that you can find something so majestic and exceptional, but also like, wow, this yeah. is, this is also, you know, I could die at any so, minute. This yeah. Is, so beautiful is dangerous sort of feeling. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that, that's the sublime, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's how that functions. Right. And that's a lot of what I experience out in the desert and out, out here in the West. And in those moments, I feel like more than in any other, I can experience and understand the meaning of the word freedom and mm. uh, which is this, mm. you know, elusive concept that yeah. America is very attached to. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's then when I'm way out there and I, and I, and I'm, you know, checking how much water I have and, <laughs> and worried about like yeah. rattlesnakes or whatever. Yeah. That's when I'm like, you know, this is, this is actual freedom. Give enough gas to get home. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, it, but that's, you know, freedom and the desert, they're terrifying, right? Yeah. They're scary. Freedom's scary. Actual freedom, like yeah. real freedom, yeah, you know, yeah, actual yeah. personal autonomy. Yeah. That shit's no joke. That shit's scary as fuck. Yeah. And, you know, we talk a good game in this country about those ideas, but I don't think most of us live, live that. Yeah, yeah. Some, you know, I, I've driven out in the desert before, and it just freaks me out thinking about, you know, like you said, th- these cowboys and people exploring the the new frontier, not knowing how far to go, not knowing when your next water source is in these crazy desert lands. Like, I don't even, mentally, I don't even know how to just walk forward. You know, it's sort of like we kind of exist on these kind of pre-existing ideas of freedom, but like we're still on the dirt road. We've got like gas, we've got water. It's not this sort of idea that, that the American West and just American general sort of constructs this idea of freedom for. Yeah. I mean, but, but also in that quest for freedom, we removed it from an entire culture, right? We removed their autonomy. We took away their freedoms so that people, the, the, the entire notion of Western expansion is really war. Right. That's that was a war. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it like it was a war, but it was a war. And like the these settlers are just the soft arm of a colonizing force. You know, the people that right, right. are like, oh, I was a you know, built a jackrabbit homestead out in the middle of nowhere. And then it turned into a town like these people are actually uh, an act of violence, even though they're portrayed as an act of independence. Right, right, right. And their presence on this landscape is an act of violence. Yeah, exactly. I'm fascinated by those things. And, and also, though, like history is not reversible, right? As much as our identities and our cultures and our histories can inform us, we can try and reconcile with some of these issues, but they still exist regardless of what we try to do to combat whatever negative or detrimental components, you know, have come out of them. Yeah. We have to first acknowledge their importance and their prominence, and then we can maybe try to work on them or heal them or fix them. Right, right. I mean, and then kind of like what you were just talking about, like the sort of exploration of the West as sort of freedom, which is in in other ways the taking away of freedom from the people who already existed there and just sort of like, you know, depending who, who, whose perspective you're taking, right. And how, how the words that are used to describe the situation changes, right. I can think of, you know, the recent um, protests during the murders of all the black and brown men and women the past year and how that was then reconfigured to be a sort of, um, you know, looters. And then there is the actual overtaking of the capital, which is then reworded as sort of weird protest thing um, and, and uh, nonviolent protesters. And yeah, again, thinking about the words that we choose to describe these actions that happen in history after they've happened. Yeah. It's, and it's a matter of who's allowed to behave how, right. And how we describe 
those, you know, one's a riot and one's a protest, but they sure look the same to me. And, you know, that's kind of at the height of, you know, this debate around white privilege and white supremacy, which like realistically white privilege is an acknowledgement of the structures that contain and support white supremacy, right? Um, they're kind of irrefutable at this point. And America, very much so, has a white supremacist problem. And, you know, that's something that we're still very hesitant to acknowledge because if you acknowledge that problem fully, something has to be done about it. Yeah. And nobody wants to do anything about that because it right. works really well right. for business interests. Because at the end of the day, you know, white supremacy serves capitalism perfectly. For capitalism to exist, which is a hierarchical system, right? You must have an underclass to support the upper class. And why not racialize that? It makes it all the easier. Then you can just point your finger and see what you see and go, well, if you look like that, then you deserve to be at the bottom of the heap. Um, you don't deserve the same things. And that makes it a lot easier to build a hierarchy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think the world's changing really fast. And I think in a way that our idea of democracy just didn't, hasn't supported, you know, this idea of globalism and all these different countries suddenly being forced together in one place. I think we'll, we'll see what happens. I'm curious, you know, talking about your performances and how you tackle this, could you, you know, talk a little bit about some of the performances you did? I saw some images of you dressed up as a cowboy, um, you went out to the Salton Sea, which I think is a, the Salton Sea is a crazy place of, like you said, this man-made slowly, I'm not sure dying, but slowly becoming increasingly inhospitable to any sort of life form as it becomes more salinated. But yeah, could you talk about some of the performances you've done? Yeah. I mean, those performances were done as an exploration and a, a light narrative about self-development, self-realization and actualization. And I went to locations I felt um, fit and kind of jived with the landscapes that I have internally, the places inside myself. And the Salton mm. Sea is certainly a very toxic place. And I think if any of us are honest with ourselves, we must acknowledge that we all have some very toxic places inside. Uh, you mm. know, that's mm -hmm. we don't need to make excuses for them, or but they exist. And yeah. out there, I did a lot of... Um, I went out there in like right around July, you know, so I consider it to a certain extent an endurance piece. And I'm dancing in that video, in that part in the Salton Sea, I'm dancing and rolling around in barnacles and fish boats yeah. because that's what the shoreline of the Salton Sea right, is. Right, right, right. And the air is relatively, yeah, the, the air is relatively toxic out there. The ground is semi-poisonous. It smells horrible, by the way. If you've, if you've never been there in person, your nose will remember the Salton Sea long after your <laughs> mind has kind of lost the image. It's also gorgeous. It's beautiful. It's yeah. this beautiful disaster uh, out in the middle of Southern California. And it's a giant mistake, right? They totally screwed up. We, we totally yeah. screwed up. This is, A, California has a massive drought. Can you imagine all that water not salinated, not poisonous? Um, nobody thought ahead to figure yeah. that one out. And, and I, you know, so the, so the Salton Sea is quite a quandary, you know, and, and I did work in other places. You know, I went out to Beatty, Nevada. I went all the way up to Reno, and went to the Truckee River. I went out to these these old mining interests and I rolled around. And, you know, all of these had to do with physical extremity, isolation, you know, and there are certain metaphors that they can serve as for psychological states. But beyond that, I also just wanted to paint a portrait of the landscape. And one of the things about the landscape in the West, especially in Nevada, is 
is that it's really expansive and it's hard to understand if you just take a photo of it. And I, I love landscape photography yeah. and you can understand it to an extent, but yeah. once you put a body in it, it becomes really easy to comprehend what kind of spaces yeah. and forces we're dealing with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it wasn't until I went out west that I was like, oh, that's why all these western movies have these extremely long shots just panning the landscape because you realize that there's no other way to kind of capture. And even when you haven't, even, unless you've actually been there, you still don't really understand just the, the crazy vastness of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, the only thing I can, can even correlate it to, and, and maybe the only thing more frightening than the desert, to my mind, as far as landscapes go, it kind of more enormous and, and, and disproportionate is, is the ocean, right? And, you know, mm -hmm. when you're way out in the ocean and you can't see any shore, there's that same thing that goes off in your in your mind, you know, you're really lost in the wild, wild sea there. And, 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 and the same thing happens when you're in the desert where you're like, okay, I know I'm on the side of the road here, but if I walk that direction for yeah. an hour, yeah. Yeah. where am I then? Like, yeah. And, and it becomes, you know, daunting. <laughs> so yeah. And, and yeah, that's, yeah, it's definitely gives you a comprehension of why Westerns are filmed the way they are. Right. Exactly. And then, so how do you, so in relationship to the performances that you do, you know, how do you see them in relationship to the objects that you make? You know, I guess when you enter the space, you know, I saw images of the installation of your um, show at the Behold a Pale Horse, and it seemed like the performances sort of existed as on the same place as these objects. And so I'm curious, you know, are these performances and are these uh, objects, do you see these as sort of like um, creating your own history? Are they are they artifacts? You know, what what kind of function do they hold for you? So within the creation of the objects, what I did is I made, I, I was lucky enough to be working with a forge master and okay. we did some small metal objects that I, I wanted to make to kind of play the role of the, the more diminutive aspects, the, the smaller mm -hmm. ones. But I wanted the objects to be the histories of spaces and then one of the aspects I incorporated into all of the objects was first and foremost, gold. I put a little gold leaf in every single object I made for this exhibition to mm -hmm. talk about kind of the hidden treasures in a metaphoric sense of, of, of exploration in the real physical sense that, you know, Nevada and the West are also very important places of extraction. Just ask Elon Musk and his upcoming lithium mine. And to then incorporate myself, I took objects from my life. I took a childhood dresser and my one of the chairs from my grandparents' old dining room table. And I pulled that apart and I incorporated aspects of that into mm. each of the uh, larger assemblage pieces. And some of the smaller assemblage pieces also had personal affects. So, yeah, you know, in order to incorporate myself and to have a dialogue about how we incorporate self in general into the broader histories we're presented with and the larger mm -hmm. data sets, right? Yeah. So I took, and also the performances specifically correlate in two ways. The A, they're about landscape and I wanted to mimic that landscape and the experience of that landscape in the object I was producing. And I think I was relatively successful in that. But also when I did those performances and shot those videos, I collected many of the scraps and many of the objects I incorporated into the assemblages uh. after I turned the camera off. So they, they are from the place or the space that I am occupying in those videos. So I'm bringing that right. experience or a physical remnant of that experience into the space. Yeah. 
That makes sense. Um, and so, you know, in those spaces, those were really large objects. I made an eight foot tall horseshoe out of rusty old metal that I found in the desert. You know, I built three large panels out of wood that then I did some live performances where I painted those panels with a combination of wood glue, wood stain, and indigo powder, powdered indigo. Yeah. And I used alternative paintbrushes too. I made my own paintbrushes. I made one out of a horseshoe, one out of a railroad spike, and one out of a machete. And those all applied, you know, all of the materials engaged also applied to the historical narrative. Indigo was a major cash crop in mm-hmm. that slaves harvested and right. produced in the United States and the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, the machete, of course, is also a part of that agricultural production done right. by enslaved people, but also a weapon of revolution in the same right. The horseshoe, mm-hmm. of course, moves forward from the machete into you know, an era of progress on horseback and the influences of equestrian culture and how that functions with cowboys, which is an equestrian culture. It is a culture centered around horses. And then the usage of the railroad spike talks about kind of the end and the progression of that technology. And while I did those performances, I had that data captured by uh, a motion capture suit because I wanted to talk about how technology drives us forward. And sometimes you can question whether or not it is the, you know, the humans making the objects work for them or the objects making the humans work towards a different goal, how that relationship functions, right? You know, the machete to the horseshoe to to the railroad spike to the digital frontier, those are really big questions because that's what happened, you know, in American history and in human history. We went from hacking away at crops to, you know, riding horses to mechanized travel. And then, you know, after mechanized travel kind of gets blown way out of proportion and we've got airplanes and cars and, you know, light rails and stuff, we kind of, especially Eurocentric society, especially Western culture kind of declares the world explored, right? Yeah, yeah. And so where are we going to go from there? We made it all the way west Right. And what pops up in on the West Coast is Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. where they start, you know, along with some other cultures around the world, building digital frontiers. And right. now human exploration in many ways is not the exploration of space, you know, physical space. This next generation's coming up are exploring digital spaces yeah. and they're building worlds. And they're satisfying that same urge that I think human beings have always had to move forward right, and explore right. new spaces, right? But they're mm-hmm. doing it in these kind of little little electronic boxes now. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's a fascinating way. It's like a Diet Coke way of <laughs> quenching your thirst, right? That's not real Coke, but, you yeah. know, there's no sugar, but well, like... Well, I guess, I guess if you're Elon Musk, you're actually going out into space, right? I think Mars is the new frontier. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. Mars is the new frontier. Yeah. And I think, but that, those are, to my mind, those are, there's only two reasons human beings have explored throughout history. Need, necessity, yeah. right? Like desperate circumstances. Oh, we got to get out of here because there ain't no food and there ain't no water. We going to die. Right. Or ego. Right. And the idea to say, well, I did it first and I mm-hmm. got to the top of Mount Everest and Elon Musk is kind of, we're not sure which one, because like maybe the earth is dying and uh, maybe he's just an egomaniac yeah. and yeah. maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah, a probably, of both. probably a little you know, bit but, of both. But <laughs> in, in the same right, like 
I was just going to say, I don't envy or admire Elon Musk for this. I mean, if you look at any great exploratory colonial mission, the first people that show up almost always inevitably die horribly. And it's not until like the third or fourth group of people show up that like they figure out the system that makes these things settleable and tolerable. And then they start killing the natives. Right. So go on to space, Elon. I'm sure it'll work out well. Uh, What were you going to say? I'm sorry. Um, I was curious. So what did you do with all the motion capture data of your performance? Um, I'm working that out. We had kind of, kind of in the fun vein of talking about technology, we had some minor failures on some of the data capture. So after the exhibition closed, which was a whole kerfuffle, I'm sure you've closed a few exhibitions and, and these were very large objects. So I I really put all my energy into that and kind of finding a place for them and making Uh sure they were safe. And then I'm working with some of the technology department over at UNLV and Hopefully, we're going to have 3D renderings and animations of that digital data set Mm. within the next three to four months. But it it just became, you know, I didn't get all the data until the end of the project. And it was like one of those things where I could try and rush or I could give myself a break. And I decided to give myself a break. Yeah, I think we all need breaks, especially during these times as everything is kind of shut down. And and like you said, you know, trying to figure out what we need to do. I think you were talking about during COVID, you kind of realized how important drawing was as a practice and sort of taking the time to slow down and take a step back. Yeah, I, I I hope everybody's gotten some of that time. But I mean, I think the last year drove everybody crazy in one way or another, right? I think we've all lost our minds a little bit more than we had before. And maybe that happens every year of your life. And we just don't notice because we're busy. Uh, (laughs) Right, and we had right. maybe a little more time to, you know, really look at ourselves going insane. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. You know, so I guess moving forward, you're going to eventually use that data to create a show. And, you know, I'm curious in general, what is your studio practice? Do you like, do you have a studio? I mean, you work with so many different materials. You've got your found objects, your, your, your assemblage, your works, your performances. Um, and so what is, what is your process in putting all of these things together? And what was that process, I guess, you know, putting together the show for the Behold a Pale Horse? Um, or is it, or are things sort of constantly shifting and changing? My process usually starts in research and, and maybe this is an unpopular statement, but I, I feel like we're really rushed to be productive and creative in, in contemporary society as artists. And most of my process is with research and is about the experiences I'm having. So kind of after I finish a a larger exhibition like this one, I kind of take my time and I really start dipping into books into kind of one of my early loves is also like cinema. And I just kind of let myself stretch out. And from there, I almost always find the next directive. And I'm pretty sure I know the process I want to take on next and the ideas I want to take on next. And they're, I think, much more performance-based and will have a larger live performance engagement Mm -hmm. capacity because, you know, one of the reasons this exhibition turned out the way it did and wasn't a more performance-based exhibition, even though there were performance aspects, was that it was COVID. And, you know, performance is, you know, drastically ineffective when no one can be there. Yeah, (laughs) Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, so you can record it and that's a cool video, but that's not a live performance. And the, you know, the difference between a video and a live performance is that there's precarity in live performance, right? Yeah, yeah. And there's also a relationship between the body and the audience, right? I think that's why people still spend so much money on live music performances, right? 
Yeah, yeah, it's all of those things. So I think that's the, you know, the next thing I really want to look into is different aspects of performance and human performativity in relation to Las Vegas as an entertainment hub. Because, you know, I think Las Vegas in ways large and small is a lot of the subject of my work. I like that I can make work that really is held and specific about this place and this space and this culture Mm -hmm. And what Las Vegas is as a microcosm for the United States and for ideas surrounding labor and capitalism and yeah, culture in mm-hmm. general, right? Mm-hmm. And all of America since. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's great. And, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing what the motion capture turns out and, and what your new research will turn out. Hopefully, I'll be able to visit Vegas under more safe circumstances. And yeah, and hopefully I'll be able to see some of your performances. I saw, like I said, I saw a few of your videos. Like I saw the Okonomiyaki one. I think I saw Shahab did a quick video of you painting wood. I'm not sure if that was one of the performances you were just describing with with all the wood panels. But yeah, like you said, it'd be great to kind of see them in person. And yeah, is there anything else you would like to add? We we talked a lot about a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, there's not much more I want to add. I would say this is like really fun. I would love for you to come to Las Vegas. We're a great town and actually meet a lot of the people you're going to be speaking with in person. Um, I, I, I mean, I applied to this residency with that intention, not knowing, you know, COVID. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I yeah. know. It's, a, it's a it's a barrel of laughs. Yeah. But no, man, I, 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 other than thank you, and this has been a great conversation, and, and I love your line of questioning and, and thinking and, and what you're doing with your podcast. It's, it's rad. This is a really great form of creative practice and, and comprehension. Um, thank you so much. Um, can you quickly let the listeners know where can they find you? You know, what's, what's the best way to kind of keep up with kind of the work that you're doing? Uh, just go to my Instagram. It's, um, bread and circuses. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like the old Roman adage, you can go on my Instagram and, and then there's also, uh, uh, artist Brent Holmes at carbon made, but I don't really update that that often, but you know, you can find me. I'm relatively findable. So I, I, and I, I, I try and put myself out there when I can. I'm actually, my mother always complains and my father, my parents both complain that, that like they don't know what's happening in my life with my, my creative <laughs> process and what I'm making. And, and so, I mean, I'm not like the world's best self promoter, but, uh, yeah. you know, I didn't get into this for that. I think for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, we all do it for our own reasons. And like you said, you know, it's it's your way of staying busy. And I think that's really important, right? I think idle hands can lead to, you know, certain things in our lives. And, and I think art is one great way to keep moving forward, like you were talking about. Yeah. Art is the act of making art in and of itself. When we talk about performance and performativity, the act of making art in and of itself is a performance, a self-generated performance, right? When yeah, any yeah. object that you create, and this this goes beyond art, really. This is... Anything people make, right? Anything people make on some level, they're, they're performing it for themselves. And that, that's definitive and it's owned by the individual. It's internal. Right. And whatever else you put out into the world, that's just the remnant of the thing you gave yourself through that right. process. Right. And that's really right. why I do it. You know, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Usually, usually, 
Yeah, there's like when I look at the work that I've done versus once it's finished, there's like they're two different states and they kind of exist in two different moments in my life and experience and reasons for having it exist as well. So yeah, it's this interesting sort of um, shift, right? The object kind of changes both historically, you know, recent history to present history, kind of like what you were talking about earlier. Yeah, exactly. That's the exceptional part about being an artist and making art, you know, having cool friends and like doing weird stuff as a bonus round, right? Um, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so, you know, um, maybe we can end on that. And again, I want to thank you so much for, you know, chatting with me and being on the podcast. Thanks to Rogers Artloft for setting this up. And yeah, hopefully I'll get to meet you someday in the future. And yeah, take care. Thanks so much for everything. You too, man. Thanks so much. All right. Bye. Cool. Bye. Seeing Color is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Siwon Chung. Additional help with editing by Tokyo Hong and Mandy Tong. Original music by Alex Chow. You can find more information on the website www.seeingcolorpod.com or on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook under the handle Seeing Color Pod. If you enjoyed this show and have the time, I'd appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you listen and give Seeing Color a five-star review. This really helps others discover the show and gives greater visibility for everyone on Seeing Color. Again, thank you so much for listening and goodbye for now. Bye.